Hi friends, welcome back to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Today's episode is a blast, as John, Shannon, Amanda, and I discuss a truly odd bird, the frigate bird. This is a bird that the more you learn about, the stranger it gets. From its inflatable beach ball sized pouch that it uses to attract mates, to the fact that it can spend weeks and even months in the air without touching the ground. We also answer a mailbag question about the owl theory from the true crime documentary, The Staircase. For those of you that aren't familiar, there was a murder trial where a woman was found dead, and late in the trial, there was a theory presented that she could have been attacked by an owl, causing vicious injuries to her head. Can an owl actually do that to a person? Who better to weigh in than our bird experts? Also, on the subject of bird attacks, we briefly discussed peregrine falcons and how Shannon and her co-workers would divert them from attacking. It's a great episode. We're excited for you all to listen. Now, grab your binoculars, and let's get into the episode. Welcome, everyone, to Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. This is RJ, and as always, I'm with Amanda, John, and Shannon. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about the frigate bird. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about this one. I don't know if you guys find it as fascinating as I do, but I think there's all these, like, it's almost like when I'm, the more you read about it, the stranger its behavior is. I mean, do you, does everybody feel that way too? Or? I, I do. Cause okay. preparing for this, I got <laughs> online and I, I didn't know there was kind of a whole cottage industry of, um, frigate birds robbing food oh. videos from other <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of videos. Planet Earth has a whole bunch of them with oh. them. That it's called kleptoparasitism with them <laughs> going after uh, boobies, for example. Oh. And they'll force the booby, even if the booby's already eaten the fish, mm-hmm. they will force the booby to regurgitate yes. it, like grab it by its tail <laughs> feathers and shake it. Yeah. And there are all these videos that are absolutely <laughs> hilarious, even going after the boobies, the sticks they're using to kind of build parts of their nests. Oh. It's like, nope, not only aren't you eating, but I'm going to get in your way of even building your nest. So drop that stick. <laughs> well, and I heard of instances where a frigate bird will train their, their young on how to steal and so they'll have like sticks in their mouth and they'll like try to take the stick away or something like that. There was some root. You got to <laughs> know because of, yeah. uh, frigate birds don't have the oily protection on top of their feathers. So they can't land in the water, oh, okay. not at least not for really for a long time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you would want to instruct your offspring on how to be successful in the air of mm-hmm. doing that or teach them how to do that on kind of on the shore which Mm -hmm. they will also do but you can't land very successfully if you're a frigate bird they they don't don't swim right do they no they no no No. yeah almost never and Mm -hmm. i mean i think basically never unless Mm -hmm. something bad happens and they end up in the water Mm -hmm. they do actually do a lot of foraging right on the surface of, Mm -hmm. of, of of the ocean and so they'll 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 eat a lot of squid that comes up to the surface and uh, uh, flying fish and things like that. And that's they're coming down and they're they're skimming across the water to grab food that way. So they they definitely don't do kleptoparasitism as the only way they they do things. Okay. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's 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 a spectacular uh, behavior in terms of what they can what they can pull off. And then they're almost completely aerial, right? They stay up in the air for long periods of t- like I heard one was up for two months without touching the ground. I mean, is that have you heard that? Yeah, that yeah. seems like fantasy, right? But it's yeah. true for several seabirds that that, wow. that they do things. And it's wow. and I'm 
blown away by you know so so for instance the the bird the, the frig, so there are six species or so of frigates birds okay and they're generally based on kind of localized island uh, a number of the species are based on localized uh, islands that they breed on that are more isolated than others so along the ways uh, that we've been talking about some of the things with cranes where you get a population out in a different place it can get isolated. But then there are these species like Magnificent Frigate Bird, which I think is the one that most people see um, in in the U.S. because it's a, it's a bird that's on both the Atlantic and the Pacific side of Mexico, for instance, um, in tropical waters. And so it gets up into Florida and, and things. I mean, it, that bird is got a, had a breeding population all the way across on the uh, uh, on the uh, Canary Island or the Azores, I think. And like in order to do that, it had to fly all that way, or at least a male and a female did. And so again, you get the establishment of these colonies all the way down in Brazil. And uh, uh, that's an interesting aspect of these birds. And yet at the same time, because of the nature of what we've been talking about in terms of how they, they feed on things, they need to find other birds that they're going to do klepto. Uh, parasitic behavior, and a lot of those birds are kind of tied to the coastal areas. And so, hmm. magnificent frigate bird is as as aerial and as pelagic as it kind of looks. Spends most of its most of those individuals spend their lives close to to shore. Okay, um, and and that's a, that's an interesting aspect of, hmm. of of things. So, what what does bring them so high up though? Because I heard that they'll also go as high as like thirteen thousand feet, which is so high up. So, what if they spend so much time down below? What is it that's driving them so far up? So, I don't think we know. This mm-hmm. gets back into the conceptual thing of what are they thinking, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, the one thing I would say on an ocean mm-hmm. is. There are real benefits to be able to get up high and see long distances. And uh-huh. so if you want to get to shore, getting up high has got to be at the top of your list of things to do. So in the evolution of migration routes of things like bristle-thighed curlews, which winter on Hawaii but breed up in, in northern Alaska, you want to fly pretty high in order to be able to spot uh, an island that's out there in the middle of the ocean or an island chain such that you can you can actually find it again and again. Okay. And so I think there's probably some benefit there. I wonder if there's but, aerial reasons that if you fly up, you expend less energy, whether the kind of air currents are different up there that mm. make them flap fewer times. I mean, if you're going to be up I, there and for two months, you know, yeah. you're going to get... T- I, I sometimes yeah. think these birds know. just like they can they do it because they can. Yeah. Like yeah. You know, and, and, and frigate birds are an interesting one because they're not considered to be particularly have major movements. They don't have seasonal movements. There's a breeding season and a non breeding season, but the the non breeding sites are generally not more than a few kilometers away from the the breeding sites, and mm-hmm. so. It, yeah, I wonder sometimes if it's like, look, we can do it. I mean, if you go to a place like Rio de Janeiro, you can look up in the morning and there'll be 40 or 50 circling over the city at any one time. And, mm-hmm. and, and man, that looks like a lot of fun to me. Yeah. So, John, I have to ask. I've talked to RJ about this. You bring up something that I've wondered for a long time. I So a little background. I One year I went to the 
Animal Kingdom resort at Disney World with my family. And at the resort, they have um, like kind of like a wildlife area right outside the hotel. And it's got like at different times it has like giraffes and other exotic animals, but also birds. And it had these two when we were there, we were we got a coffee or something. We were just passing through. But the they had these I think they were like black African storks or something. It was some type of African stork. And it was two male storks that were working together to build a nest. And you could watch it out the window and it was really interesting. And that we talked to the naturalist and they had removed this sounds terrible, and it is terrible. <laughs> they had removed like a bone from the wing, the wings of each of these storks, so that they were there forever. They they couldn't fly away, and everyone who was listening, the naturalist was kind of appalled by this. And the naturalist was like, "Well, birds don't fly for fun. They always are flying to." Um, get away from something to hunt like for eating or for like for a reason and I was so taken aback by that would you speak so, to that so all I can tell you is, is is again we were in this recent trip to Bermuda and we were watching these other birds which are one of the species that uh, uh, frigate birds kleptoparasitize tropic birds and tropic birds are these white seabirds, black and white, with these big, long trails, and they nest in rock holes. And they're like frigate birds in the sense that they basically have no capacity to move on the ground. So these are they're foraging in very the same way. I think they take a lot of stuff off the surface. Um, but I would watch these birds, and you would watch them for hours, just like the frigate birds. They're not fishing. They're not. It's not like they're actively looking for stuff. They're just cruising around. And so... I I'm bet yeah, when I don't nothing everything is not deterministic in that way. There's no way. I mean, you have to practice. Baby birds, they don't just fly out of the nest really effectively. They often fall to the ground and jump. They have <laughs> yeah. to get taken back up and put back in until they're actually have enough to fly. Mm-hmm. They you know, you have to practice. You have to learn things. And so if you're going to watch especially if you're eventually you're an aerial maneuverer like that, well, you're going to you have to practice because you're going to miss a lot of food if you don't know how to bank and and you don't just innately know every aspect of how to do that. So I don't, I don't, maybe I just am anthropomorphizing birds, but I don't, that's not how I see them when I watch them, you know. It looks like they have too much fun. That's what I think <laughs> I mean, too. Certainly a lot of, I mean, there are plenty of situations where that's true. And, and I mean, because they can. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. If you can fly like that, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Could just go do something just because you can. You know. That's what we always say. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I would do that if I Me could fly. Too. <laughs> That's my superpower. If I am ever granted that kind of a wish, it will be to fly. No question. <laughs> Me too. 
Well, so another thing with the frigate bird that was interesting to me was the um, like the the guller pouch, and it talked about how they use that to attract females, and it was almost kind of like it seemed like the inverse of what we talked about the woodcock does earlier. So this is the females up in the air and looks down and sees the male presenting the guller pouch. Is that is that correct? Yeah, and yeah. they're and they're in fairly tight groups. So mm-hmm. so I mean you had woodcocks in mm-hmm. a few numbers, but woodcocks are pretty dispersed in comparison, whereas these frigate birds are finding sites with bushes and things that are likely nesting sites, and the males sit down and find a good spot and start blowing up that guler pouch and clacking their bills, and the females make their decisions and come in and, and they form a pair bond. With a caveat being that, that one of the things I find really interesting about frigate birds is that that pair bond doesn't last very long. They estimate that it only lasts into the time that the young first are, are yeah. getting bigger and then the males take yeah, off. Yeah, the males take off and they find someone else. Yeah. And, and, but, but, the, but the other thing about frigate birds is they only lay one egg. And I, I one of the things about the clutch size is that it's got to be dictated by various aspects of your biology in the sense that you've if you lay one egg, you've got to be in a place where you're pretty sure that that egg is actually going to be able to um, to hatch. And I think that uh, one of the things that may be true with frigate birds is that from an evolutionary standpoint, they've gotten themselves in a little bit of a bad spot with respect to trying to deal with people cutting down mangroves and or, or places, nesting sites that they, they've used. So they've, they've been extirpated from the island of Puerto Rico. Um, and so there are a lot fewer nesting colonies than there than there probably were historically before Europeans started colonizing all these tropical uh, areas. It takes a long time to blow up that guler pouch, oh. too. So it doesn't you don't just decide to do it and then <laughs> it happens immediately. Okay, you know it. And to deflate too, right? I I heard that they sometimes will get spooked, and it takes a long it takes a long time for it to deflate. So they'll be flying away with the cooler pouch mm-hmm. inflated. Yeah. So you have to. I mean, if you're displaying, you have to display for real. If it's going to take you, I don't know, fifteen minutes, thirty minutes to inflate that pouch, it's <laughs> <laughs> you got to mean it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, you know, again, here's the evolution of this incredible trait like that, and. Yet there's such a little, you know, such a short pair bond between the male and the female, um, which happens a lot in birds with with traits like this for sure. Better make it big. But, yeah, <laughs> size yeah. matters. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to think about other birds that size that have. I mean, there's nothing. Well, the closest thing I could come up with is is there if you watch videos of things like sage grouse and prairie chickens, they have some bare skin patches that they're kind of thrusting out in a little bit. Of, it's not, it's not being, it's not blowing up a, a air sac, but it's, they've got some capacity to make these things display. And it's clearly part of what's entices the female to mate with them. Mm-hmm. So there are some, some other good sized birds that, that have some interesting uh, sort of featherless parts of their body that they're using in, in some of these rituals. And then the, the specimen that you have at the field museum with like a guller pouch, how do you, um, I mean, is there a way to display that or, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, the, the soft part colors of birds that die, so that skin is mm-hmm. a soft part color and that 
the color fades away very quickly after death and it gets all dried and icky. Okay. But so if you want to portray it lifelike, there's going to be artistic endeavors oh, done to it to keep it up and to paint it and and stuff like that otherwise because if you look at them you'd never look at a picture and then look at a dead specimen in the collections and think how does these things don't they don't match yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, w- um, I was interested I, I had one out to kind of talk about maneuverability because they have this big fork tail which they you've used to maneuver and this was at members night at the field museum a couple of weeks ago and uh, a lot of people would come up and look at it and when you look at a specimen sometimes your first thought is not necessarily the correct one, but people would guess that it was a, a double-crested cormorant. Oh, okay. And the interesting thing to me there is certainly the bill of that bird is not dissimilar to to kind of the shape of a cormorant bill with a big hook on the end and, and things. And, again, that's a uh, those birds are related to one another. And when you fold up their wings – you can't tell how big the wingspan is, yeah. right? So if we unfolded that wingspan, they have a very distinctive wing shape that mm. once you know what it looks like, you're not going to mistake it for anything else. And um, But, you know, they're all folded up. You can't tell how just how wide that wingspan yeah. is yeah, they, and they, what the shape of the wings and, is. And, and, again, with that wingspan, they can wander around. So one of the things that happens is in the Gulf of California, you get storms in the late summer, and, and sometimes birds get blown inland. And I was in Tucson at one point, nine o'clock at night, and I got a call from a local birder who said, John, there's a, a kid on the south side who says there's this giant bird in his tree, and he's called the news stations, and they weren't interested. You know, can, will you come out with me to check out what it was? And we got out there, and there was this storm with 30-mile-an-hour winds, and sitting up in the top of this eucalyptus was an immature frigate bird that oh, had wow. blown into Tucson, Arizona, off the Gulf of California, <laughs> and and there's, uh, there's actually a very exciting record where Josh Engel, who's a very good birder in the Chicago area and runs a tour uh, company, um, he was in Evanston. And he looked up one day and saw a, a frigate bird. Really? Oh, and what? He told everybody, <laughs> and everybody thought. That several days later. A frigate bird, presumably the same individual, showed up in Michigan at the south side of the lake. Wow. And a number of the Illinois birders were able to get over there to see it again. Wow. So, yeah, so they can they can, they can cover tra- a lot of ground travel. if they get lost. <laughs> John has a great frigate bird story. Tell him your <laughs> dissertation frigate story in Hurricane Andrew. Oh, well, that's, yeah. I had a frigate bird over the, during a hurricane in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I was doing field work or doing lab work on the day of the hurricane and trying to get into the lab. And so I was dodging things. And right over one of the lakes in Baton Rouge, there was a frigate bird uh, right over. And so, yeah, they, they definitely are well known to be birds that can be get way out of range. And that may be in part to, to the conversation of if you go up really high mm-hmm. to catch or maybe you're trying to avoid storms. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that could lead put you know put you in a position where you get way off course pretty quickly and depending on what happens yeah cool cool and I had one question the pouch the gular pouch is that just for mating or is that yeah it's just for mating yep wow to completely yeah. retract I mean think the, about how far that 
it's a big balloon, right, that comes out. <laughs> and, and it's red. So it mm-hmm. gets into my, I'm fascinated by colors, right? So what's in that red thing? So yes. there are carotenoids in it. But there was a really interesting paper published uh, in 2008 or 2009 that kind of looked in detail at what was inside that pouch. So there are carotenoids, but it's a, it's a different kind of carotenoid, astrosanthum. And it's red, but it also that that carotenoid also influences the immune system, which I found found really interesting. Mm. And there's also an influx of blood into that too. So the red is you know composed of a lot of different things. So they think hemoglobin might be part of the the intense red coloration. I'd be wondering if there was any chance they get it from squid or or fish or something. Well, they get it to have to get it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> something that they eat has to put those carotenoids in its yeah. body. Yeah. Um, wow. But That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of things we don't know, right? Yeah. That's the fun thing about yeah, science. I mean, yeah. Frigate birds are, you know, they, they, they banded some and they know they can live as long as 35 years. So no. they're, they're definitely long-lived birds. But they don't know a lot of basic things about the biology very well. So the idea that the breeding season or the the bear bonding is not um, year to year, that's speculation based on people who have watched these colonies. But it's really hard to color band something like that and watch it year after year. And mm-hmm. so there's a there's definitely a lot of basic biology about frigate birds that people don't really understand all that well. Should we uh, jump into some mailbag questions before we wrap it up? Sure. This is from Alex from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Um, And he says, Shannon, I know you're a big fan of true crime podcasts. Are you familiar with the show The Staircase? I was curious if you're familiar with the owl theory and if an owl could actually do that. Would love to hear your thoughts. I did watch that. I watched both the documentary part and then I watched, I can't remember whether it was HBO, whoever did the um, the dramatization of it, which really didn't touch on that, which I, kind of I found amazing. So that was a neighbor of the Petersons, a lawyer, was the one who came up with that towards the end of the trial. Okay. So too close to closing arguments to have the lawyers argue for this because I guess you can't bring in new evidence in your closing arguments. I learned that from podcasts. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, and the, so he just thought about, came up with this idea, and it turns out, so they, it's not just kind of a hokey thing, too. This guy is really pretty smart, and he did his homework on such attacks, including talking to someone who in Colorado who does it Rocky Mountain um, Raptor or something I can't remember but they oh, went the, to an expert um, the Rocky Mountain Raptor project is that yeah. so they we've, went, we've seen them before yeah, yeah there's a, yeah. a woman who was in charge of that at least back then who talked to them about it and yeah there are videos and you can look them up on YouTube too there are videos of owls wow. doing that so North Carolina at that time of year they're breeding they're okay. displaying and pairing up and mating and um and if you ever look at an owl's talons you will have healthy respect <laughs> for what an owl might be able to do so the what they think might have happened is that she got hit outside of her house um by this by an owl and there are 
the impressions that are in her head, at least the drawings I looked at, and I don't know if they're real pictures, but the closest I could get were drawings, showed marks that are very consistent with what an owl's talons could Mm -hmm. do, and owls have feathered feet. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, it wouldn't be unexpected that if she was trying to get this owl out of her head, that it just really hurt her. Hmm. Um, and she, apparently she had um, pulled out her own hair in doing this because hmm. she had hair by the roots in her hands. I know I, I'm obsessed with these kinds of things, so I know a lot of details, which is really weird. But <laughs> So could an owl mistake her for, or, I mean, why, it would attack you, her thinking it's something that it, it yeah, could eat? someone or? in your in your territory. Okay. okay. So it's like, I'm getting you out with the means that I have, which oh, is, wow. I'm going to scare, I'm going to scare you. And if you don't get out of my way, I'm going to hurt you. She had had a lot of alcohol before she um, went inside, uh, including some um, drugs as well that maybe could have made, meant that she wasn't as aware as she could have been. Mm. So do I think it killed her itself? No, but I think that you could make that, you could guess that she was disoriented by this. She tried to get up the stairs and she fell um, down the rest of the stairs and, you know, landed at the bottom as they very graphically show yeah. <laughs> in these documentaries. Yeah. I know it sounds horrible, but it's fascinating. But one of the things they could have done, like that we would do if we were in that, the microscopic feathers that were found in her hair and in, in, grasped in her fingers, you could um, DNA test those feathers mm. and you could know what kind of a, uh, you know, whether it was an owl and what kind of an owl oh, it wow. actually was. That's amazing. So, wow. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I had heard about the owl theory and watched that documentary just because of the owl theory. I was so curious about it, and I didn't realize it was just a little, like, three-minute clip at the end of it. So I got, like, three or four episodes in, and I was like, when are they going to talk about the owl? And then <laughs> yeah, I was, like, Googling no it, and then I found out it was just this little thing that they put at the very end. Yeah, I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to rewind and say, did I fall asleep? Did <laughs> yeah, I miss something yeah. at the end of that thing? Yeah. And, and in fact... We were in the, I was in our DNA lab in the museum last week, and we were talking about the owl theory. I was asked twice in one day uh. <laughs> about the owl theory. I have no idea kind of, oh, I know where it came from. It came from me telling people what podcasts and true crime <laughs> things they should listen to and watch. And so then the whole owl theory kind of came out of that. Okay. <laughs> so I was always fascinated that years ago I read this story from one of the National Wildlife Refuges in Georgia, I think. And a guy was suing the National Park Service because he had been out on a boardwalk in a swamp and had played a barred owl song, recall, near a nest. And the owl came down and hit him in the head. Oh, my god! And they wanted compensation. I never heard how that came out, but but it was literally – so, yeah. It happens. It's an interesting – it's an interesting idea. Wow, wow. I mean, we have people in the Field Museum, Mary Hannon and other colleagues who – look at the peregrine falcons and that's always an issue for them too Mm -hmm. um they're not only do the birds actually hit them in the head last week someone we 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 wear helmets and we take brooms and the the idea of the broom is to get the falcon to go after the broom and not you oh and last week uh, there's a particularly aggressive female at one of the sites and and one of our colleagues got hit a couple times oh Oh my gosh and they just yeah and they're oh. protecting their nests and wow. so 
you'd think they would know if there was a barred owl nest in their neighborhood, but maybe mm-hmm. they did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I worked uh, when I was before I left um, Canada to come to the U.S. I worked for the museum there, and we got to go census gull colonies. And the one thing you do when you census these colonies is you have a hat and you put a yardstick in uh-huh. the back, sticking out of the back of the hat, so that. Because you could get knocked off. Some of these places are really small, and you could get knocked into the ocean extremely easily. And so you want to entice the bird to hit, not you, but, you know, get as close as it can without destabilizing you and knocking you into the water. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But it was actually a really fun job. (laughs) One of the most fun things I've ever done. (laughs) All right. Well, I uh, I think that's probably a good place to stop for this episode. John, do you want to end it? Yeah, I was going to say open your windows at 4.30 and listen to the robins and enjoy them right now. <laughs> oh, I hate those robins. <laughs> Not okay. anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I do hate those robins. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Just a reminder that you can reach out to us at podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com with your mailbag questions. We wanted to thank Earhole Studios in Chicago for allowing us to record at your studios. We appreciate the help. We've been receiving a ton of great feedback, so thank you to everyone for listening and for your continued support. We're still trying to get the word out there, so if you've enjoyed our podcast, please spread the word and let somebody know about us. We have more episodes dropping every week, so please subscribe and continue to listen. Thanks, everyone.